As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And the second reading is Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Have a wonderful time, six to eight people. For everyone else, please keep your Bibles open pretty much wherever you want, because we're going to be jumping around. Let me lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word. Please, uh, Heavenly Father, enable us to concentrate, to tremble and rejoice at your word this morning, that we might be grown more and more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, will you be content in the nursing home? It's a question that assumes you'll get to the stage where you'll have lived beyond the national average probably and have enough of your mind functioning to appreciate whether or not you are actually content, but will you be content in the nursing home? Should you come to the point where you have the mixed blessing of knowing that death is slowly rather than instantly coming upon you, and when all the trimmings and trappings of this life, as you know, are stripped away, whether that amounts to being in a literal nursing home or perhaps a metaphoric nursing home scenario, will you be content? It's devastatingly sad that from what I can gather, for some people in the nursing home, when the props of life are stripped away, what's left is a very bitter and cold person. A person who may have even been considered successful in their vocation and achievements, but who has a long trail of broken relationships behind them, a life filled with regrets, for which there's no longer any kind of worldly distraction. 
On the other hand, the only Christian auntie that I happened to have in my family was once visiting a nursing home. I think it may have been to, to see her, her mother, I can't remember. But I remember her saying afterwards there was this, this elderly lady there who, though fairly immobile, just exuded joy and contentment, smiling and chatty, a pig in mud kind of thing. My auntie's throwaway comment was, I bet that lady was a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, is it a bit silly to assess somebody's spiritual status on the basis of just observing them being content for an hour or whatever it is? But then later on, I reflected that, A, my auntie is one of those annoyingly really perceptive people, and she's been Christian longer than I have, and B, the first three uh, of the Spirit's fruits that are listed for us in Galatians 5 happen to be love, joy, and peace. And it is that same Spirit by which our hope for an eternity with Christ is guaranteed. So maybe she was right. But whether right or wrong, if I make it to the nursing home, literal or metaphoric, What's it going to be for me? What's it going to be for you? Am I going to look back and because of all the life choices I've made, be pretty content? Or am I going to be bitter and sour and filled with regret? Hold on to that thought. It's going to become relevant as today we are in our third and final instalment of our mini doctrine series on the personal work of God the Holy Spirit. And we look today at the spirit in relation to sanctification. And I realise that's probably a word that needs defining. To be sanctified is to be made holy in the sight of God. Uh, the spirit makes us holy by applying the merits of Jesus directly to the individual sinner. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in the first uh, sermon. Yet the goal of sanctification includes progressive conformity to the image of Jesus. You see, the Spirit makes us holy, next slide, and therefore, in cooperation with his work and through his empowering, we continually become holy. Theologians call this positional and progressive sanctification. Now, there is some debate amongst the, the nerdy theologians about whether progressive sanctification is the right word to use for this concept, but I don't care. We're going to, it's positional and progressive sanctification. And in the long term, progressive sanctification, which necessitates positional sanctification, makes a world of difference in our lives, and therefore, I would say, in the proverbial nursing home. Now, to begin learning about the Spirit's work in sanctification, it might help to appreciate the big differences in how God the Spirit has chosen to operate on either side of the ministry of Jesus. I know a lot of people had questions about this from the growth groups, right? How the Spirit has operated before and after the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the way that I like to think about it is that the Spirit's indwelling has gone from being provisional to being permanent. And we're at point one on your outline if you're a note taker. In the Old Testament, God's spirit seems to indwell some of God's people, either permanently or temporarily. Whereas in the New Testament, it seems he only ever indwells all God's people permanently. 
why is that the case? Well, a key text to understanding this is uh, in John 7 where we read, and I'll put the words on the screen. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John gives a little comment to tell us what Jesus meant. Verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now that's strange because you and I know, if you've read even you know, a few bits of your Old Testament, you'll know that the Holy Spirit occasionally did come directly on some of God's people before Jesus was glorified. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit definitely came upon Jesus' mother before Jesus was born and then glorified. So it must be in a particular sense that Jesus here says the Spirit will be given only after he's ascended to God's throne. What is that sense in which the Spirit now indwells people in a qualitatively and quantitatively different way to them what he did before. Well, here's a really easy way to think about it, right? This is, this is the, the explanation that once you get this in your head, it'll, it'll make things pretty good. When God, who I'm actually going to call God the Father, established the nation of Israel and made their land a dwelling place for his name, he did so literally by living among them in a tent. God literally with his people in a tent. Such that the prophet Moses could rightly boast, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way Yahweh our God, the Lord our God, is so near to us whenever we pray to him. God himself, and I'm going to say God the Father, dwelt with his people. Yet, as I'm sure you know if you've read Leviticus or Exodus, access into God's presence was very difficult And eventually, on account of Israel's ongoing rebellion, God got out of there. He left the tabernacle, which by that stage was the temple. Later, when Jesus, God the Son, came into the world, John's Gospel tells us that he literally tabernacled among us. He is God veiled in flesh. Hence, those he was with could rightly be said to have been in the presence of God. And yet, Jesus also left. He informed his disciples that it would ultimately be better if he leaves to be with the Father, John 14. For when he does that, he would send the Holy Spirit. The impure hearts of the Israelites meant that it was hard for them to enter into the presence of God, the Father. The fact that Jesus came and chose to limit himself in time and place by taking on human flesh in order to die... Uh, It meant that it was better, therefore, if he too departed. But on account of Jesus' sin-bearing death and resurrection and enthronement, by which God's people are now declared holy and righteous, Jesus could freely pour out the Spirit on all who have faith in him, allowing us to dwell permanently in the presence of both the Father and the Son. Jesus said regarding the Spirit, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them and we, Father and Son, will come to them and make our home with them. And that happens at the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. 
So the sense in which the Spirit indwells God's people now, that's different to how he may have prior to Jesus' ascension, is that because Jesus has been glorified, saved sinners can be admitted into the permanent presence of the triune God without him compromising his holiness. And I wonder if already you can see why Christians, out of sheer delight and gratitude, can't help but want to become increasingly holy. In his love and kindness, God the Spirit empowers us to do so. And he does that both for us as individuals and, point two, also as the body, the church of believers. Uh, for this one, we're going to look at Ephesus. For the church in Ephesus, a number of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, had uh, recently turned and put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour which I make no secret about in saying I think anyone and everyone should do that. The Apostle Paul knew that this meant that they were therefore fully-fledged members of God's eternal kingdom, along with the original Jewish believers who had also received the same spirit. And so Paul desperately wanted to know these new Gentile Christians, he wanted them to, to appreciate just how much they now stand to inherit as members of God's kingdom. He wants these new Gentile Christians to know how good they now, they now have it. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, which we had read for us, Paul tells them what he's praying for them. And I want us to notice what Paul assumes about the Spirit during his prayer. He writes, and again the words will be on the screen, I pray for you new Gentile converts, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and I just want to point out in these words here in verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. That's, that's the plural you, use, use people, right? But then with power through the Spirit in your inner being, that your inner being, it's all singular. Each one of you individually in your inner being. Paul assumes that God the Holy Spirit resides and works in the inner being or the heart of each individual Christian. His work is said to be one of strengthening or empowering. The word strengthen, uh, a power, sorry, occurs twice in this little section. And this spirit-given power is for the purpose of coming to greater and greater appreciation of what is already ours in Christ. How, how wide, how high, the, uh, how deep the love of Christ. It's not power to defeat sickness, power to become rich. It's far more satisfying and far more important than those things. It's power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you know, just for a second, I can't help but to make a little point of application on this tiny bit of teaching alone. See, I know that it could very easily be the case that, that you, some of you, feel like you're currently not making much, if any, progress in your Christian maturity. 
There's a few things, perhaps, or perhaps there's many things that you lament about how your life is, is currently tracking. If that is you, then firstly, you need to know you are definitely not alone. And secondly, you need to be reminded that our God is gentle and approachable. He has graciously given you his indwelling spirit. And so basically all you need do is ask him to do that powerful work of bringing you into increasingly greater appreciation of what you do have in Christ. The very next words that Paul says from this section of Ephesians are, and they'll be on the screen, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just ask God. Keep working that power in me, Father, to help me appreciate the depth, the height, the love of Jesus that I know is mine. Now, of course, the spirit who indwells every individual believer is the one and only true and living God. Hence, it's not surprising that he does his work of sanctifying not only at the individual level, but also at the corporate level. God the Spirit is actually in the process of sanctifying the church, preparing the bride of Christ for the great wedding banquet of the Lamb on the last day. Here's a fairly quick fire run through Ephesians from this part, from the end of three, but through Ephesians four and five, where Paul outlines for us how it is that the Spirit empowers the church for increasing holiness. We know, and the Ephesian church knew, that when Christ ascended to the right hand of God, he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. When you hear Christ ascended and gave, anyone who's everyone who's a Christian expects the answer to be, we gave his Holy Spirit when Christ ascended again. But Paul gives a more specific picture of what that looked like in practical terms. Jesus gave the ministry of the word, the means by which the Spirit ultimately brings God's church into maturity. Uh, Ephesians 4, so Christ himself gave, when he was ascended in the context, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. And by the way, that's a dodgy translation. It's for the work, singular, of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up. The church may be built up, in other words. Verse 8, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Just like he wanted for the individuals to appreciate the fullness of Christ. Well, now, so it happens for the church. And that's the reason Christ gave the Spirit, yes, but more specifically, the word ministry, that of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. That same word ministry given by the original word ministers, namely the, the original prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, is the word ministry that God's church is still to this day preserving and engaging in. The spirit who established the early church by the teaching of these word ministers is the same spirit who continues to build and strengthen the church by the ministry of the word that they gave and which we, of course, now have in the scriptures. It makes sense because once upon a time, Jesus had prayed for his followers that God would sanctify them, that is, make them holy by the truth, after which he immediately added, and your word, God, is truth. 
If the Spirit's going to sanctify the church, you will rightly expect that he does it by the word of God, which is truth, and that's what Jesus prayed for. And of course, when the Spirit was poured out, resulting in those original apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, so Jesus' prayer was obviously answered. The church received God's word of truth, and we've learned and applied that same word to ourselves collectively ever since, and so we continue to be sanctified as the church of God. Which leads me to say, right now, to all of you who are sitting here, good on you for being here at church. I know church gatherings can on some occasions be far more enjoyable than on other occasions. But regular meeting around the word of God is one of the big ways that the Holy Spirit works to progressively sanctify us. You want to grow in your holiness, you're doing the right thing by being here. Now with all that said, apart from giving rise to word ministry that is to and for one another, is there another way that the Spirit of God at work within us and within the church works such that we are increasingly sanctified? Well, yes, there is. And the short answer is that he grows the church in holiness by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. He grows the church in holiness by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. Just as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and taught them that they would be blessed if they did the same, so the spirit he gives to all believers inspires and enables us to serve one another in love. Now, the text on this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, a big three-chapter slab of text. The Apostle Paul gave this one long slab of teaching on this very topic in, in that part, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Now, obviously, this would easily be a whole sermon in itself, so I'm going to do the crash course, right? We're going to do the speedy Gonzales of all of that part of the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The simple overview, if you like, of this part of God's Word, hopefully in the hope that with this in mind, you'll be better prepared as you read it slowly yourself. And by the way, if, when I've got through this whole uh, crash course summary, if you want access to it, just let me know and I'll, I'll give it to you. Now, I'm not going to put up the Bible text. I'm just going to put up summary points, but I'll read relevant parts of the Bible as I put those summary points up. But of course, you can have your Bible open in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Be ready to look 12, 13, 14. Here we go. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 12 by saying, and I quote, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Except he doesn't say that. Because the word gifts is not there in the original. It's one of the most annoying things about this particular translation, and most translators do it. It's just the word spirituals, spiritual things which could mean being spiritual. You guys, when it comes to being spiritual, I don't want you to be uninformed. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that when it comes to being truly spiritual, it is so easy for Christians to get sidetracked. He knows this is a danger. So he says regarding, I mean, there's a danger inherent in the fact that they've already mistranslated it, right? Gifts of the Spirit does not exist in 1 Corinthians 12. It's spirituals. 
I want you to be aware, says Paul. He then goes on to say that whilst the Holy Spirit inspires and enables many kinds of service, that, verse 7, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 7. That is, the Spirit works not to help me, to serve me, to edify me, but to serve and edify the many, the collective, the common good, the church. That's what true spirituality will look like. And because it's the one God, the Holy Spirit, working through all believers to serve the church, no matter the ways in which each person serves or contributes, all members have an equally valuable and important contribution. Paul goes really hard on this. I'm going to read some of his words from 1 Corinthians 12 from verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And then right at the end of chapter 12, after just saying that every member, no matter who they are, equally contributes and they're equally valid, he totally contradicts himself. Right at the end of chapter 12, Paul will say, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way. And you're supposed to read that and go, What? Paul, you just said there's one spirit, he works in all of us so that we can serve one another. No one's better or worse than anyone else. All our gifts, those that look less valuable, are indispensable. And right at the end you say, now, I want you to go for the good stuff. Eagerly desire something better. And of course he's doing a little tactic. You're supposed to go, what do you mean, Paul? Well, it takes us into the next section of his argument, which is chapter 13, because it makes you want to hear, well, what are you going to say, mate? And the argument is that in and of themselves, many kinds of spiritual services are no better or worse than one another. What does make the difference, though, is the underlying attitude by which those works of service are exercised. Unlike some of the Corinthians who are making themselves feel spiritually superior by their great contributions or their fancy-looking contributions, the most excellent way that Paul cheekily calls the greater gifts, are those that are undergirded by love. For genuine love is always other person-centred. It does not seek to build me up. It seeks to build others up. That's how you can know a gift is spiritual. doesn't matter what the gift is or the service is. It matters, is this an expression of other person-centred love? Paul says, and I suspect some of you will be familiar with these words from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a bit of a favourite wedding passage for some. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. And so then, in order to show what it looks like when this principle of love is applied to our thinking about what makes for true spirituality, the truly spiritual way of sanctifying the church, Paul then moves to a whole chapter where he gives a worked example. The example of 
uninterpreted tongues, which just means languages, which is self-serving and therefore unspiritual, versus the example of prophecy, which serves the church and therefore is in line with the Holy Spirit's work. Paul writes uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. And when you first hear that, it sounds like it's really good. Anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people, but to God. But if you followed Paul's argument, you'll realise that's a put-down. It's a bag-out. They don't speak to people. I mean, God hears them. He's the only one who can hear them. It's actually an insult. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. No one understands them. They are the mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. It's the example of being selfish versus spiritual. I can give you a really good example of stuff. The most important thing I've been thinking about saying this morning, and I want you to wake up for this if you feel, that, that I, I, I've desperately wanted to say to you all is, Amen. No, 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 no. Don't you just appreciate how spiritual I am because I've spoken in a different language? Look how good I am. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jake Bailey, yeah, no. <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? Would you like me to interpret yes. the language? Well, I would not have spoken it unless I have the gift of being able to interpret this particular thing that I've just said, although my wife, I think, could actually know it because she knows it. It's a little Jewish kid song, My Hat Has Three Points, Three Points Has My Hat. If, it was, if there was a hat without three points, it wouldn't be my hat. So it was very unedifying anyway. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is just so easy, though, for us to get the wrong idea about what makes for truly spiritual serving versus what's, you know, actually spiritually useless. There's, you've, got to, you've got to draw a distinction between those two things. Therefore, Paul says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14, tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of, them, out of your mind? And I've got to say I'm deeply saddened, though frankly not at all surprised, that there are so many churches around that defy God precisely in this way. Even the unbelievers can see they've lost the plot. In the middle of this worked example, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, note he doesn't say that, since you are eager for spirituals to be really spiritual, try to excel in those that build up the church. Putting this all together, as best I can anyway, I think it's fairly accurate to say that God the Holy Spirit is on about sanctifying the church by empowering us for word ministry, both individually and corporately, and 
for other person-centred service. God the Spirit is on about sanctifying the church by empowering us for word ministry as individuals and as a church and for other person-centred service. Following the Spirit's leading and cultivating the Spirit-filled life that orders your priorities as Jesus, then others, and puts yourself last, hence that old cheesy Christian acronym, Joy, Jesus, Others, You, is as best as I can work out the way to ensure that your nursing home scenario is as good as it can possibly be. And I really liked that photo, so I couldn't help but put it there. Two very quick implications. One, receive the indwelling spirit. If you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, I can tell you what joy legit looks like. Joy and contentment is in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and growing in the grace and knowledge of him. Turn, repent, say, Jesus, I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for you. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to make you Lord and Saviour of my life. Uh, if that's you and that's you seriously, that's because the Holy Spirit has come upon you anyway and will continue to sanctify you and make you holy in the sight of God and guarantee your eternity in heaven with him. If you want to know more about that, for goodness sake, ask me or put it on your Connect form afterwards. Lastly, something's gone out of fashion for Christians. We used to have these things that we called spiritual disciplines. I can see why it's gone out of fashion because it seems a little bit oppressive. Oh, you must do this and do that. And one of the things we want to run away from is legalism, right? You're not saved if you do this or if you do that. You are saved, therefore you do this or do that is a much better way of putting it. But spiritual disciplines are a good thing. Uh, What's a spiritual discipline, Ben? Well, it's anything that actually makes you consciously cooperate with what God the Spirit is already doing in your life. God the Spirit wants you to grasp how wide and deep and, and, and big is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to cooperate with the Spirit. Well, where am I going to find that out? We're going to find that in the Bible. So I will discipline myself to read the Bible. There are Christians who have a, a little thing where every morning or every night at the same time they spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, one hour, I don't know, reading the Bible and praying. We, we call it a quiet time. That's a spiritual discipline. That's a thing. You've got some people who try to make it a thing and they struggle and so they come up with little rules for themselves. Um, no Bible, no breakfast is one that I've heard, right? But I'll tell you what would do it for me. Imagine you couldn't brush your teeth before going to bed or getting up in the morning, right? You know how there's some people, you just, like, I, I just feel wrong if I haven't brushed my teeth, right? Imagine it was like, no, no Bible, no toothbrush. Whoa. I don't know what it is for you, right? That, that's a spiritual discipline. Um, there's absolutely no command or necessity whatsoever for fasting in the Bible. And anyone who uh, implies that that's something to be imposed or taken on is someone that's gone beyond Scripture. But you are free to fast if you so desire. It won't make you any closer to God than you already are unless you swear off all food and all drink for a good month. Then you'll get closer to God. But if that's your personality and your style and you know that that helps you to focus and it's going to make you more cognizant of the person and work of Jesus and what the Spirit is therefore doing in your life, by all means, fast. Now, don't go boasting about your fasting. That'll be, become immediately unspiritual. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites, you know, oh, look, I'm so hungry. Shut up. <laughs> Either you fast properly or you don't do it, all right? That, that's, my, that's the Ben Pakula version of what Jesus was saying. Anyway. But friends... 
as much as we are right to emphasise that salvation is by grace alone and sanctification is a given, we are also not wrong to say that spiritual disciplines are a thing that are worth considering. But I leave that in your very capable hands and see as the Spirit leads in you what, will that, what that will amount to. Let me conclude in prayer. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your Holy Spirit at work within and among us, that he declares us to be totally holy and righteous in your sight and that therefore he also empowers and enables us to progress in our holiness. Father, may we be unafraid of embracing what we might call spiritual disciplines in order to be strengthened and built up as individuals. And may we be truly spiritual in our thinking about one another, seeking to serve others in love as Jesus has served us in love. Prevent us, Father, from getting enamoured with stuff that looks really spiritual but is in the end self-seeking. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.